Hi, my name is Thais Gibson and I'm the owner and founder of the Personal Development School. This is your daily breakthrough video and in this video I'm going to talk about 12 key strategies for settling into a romantic relationship and staying happy once the honeymoon phase is over. Okay, so um, many of us confuse infatuation with love. Many of us, and this is very common, um, that I see individuals get into a relationship, the relationship's amazing, everything's great for the first you know, year to two years, and then the honeymoon phase oh, it, it starts ending or is actually over. And the neurochemicals drop off and can even start dropping off around the six month mark. Um, and, and then all of a sudden we're left with this person and we're like, oh, the feelings are gone because we're confusing the infatuation as being over. So we're gonna go through some key strategies to keep the relationship alive, to build a strong foundation, and to, I, I like to compare infatuation and love to like pleasure-seeking versus fulfillment. If anybody's ever been through a phase in their life where they were like pleasure-seeking, like drinking a lot or partying a lot or doing all these things that are, you know, trying to get that like stimulation and that high, and then they started working on themselves and experiencing that sense of like well-being and strong fulfillment, and it's, you know, that pleasure-seeking at first seems like the be-all and end-all, like, oh, this is so exciting, and, and just like the infatuation in a relationship, and then, you know, when you compare that over time to fulfillment, you know, deep fulfillment and connection and, and growth and all these things that, you know, create that relationship to self, fulfillment eventually becomes so much stronger than pleasure-seeking ever could have been. And I like to think of that as, as an analogy for infatuation versus love. You know, eventually love overpowers infatuation by so much and the roots in a relationship can become so deep and, and nourish that the idea of infatuation doesn't really pose a threat or hold a candle to the love that's been harvested in your relationship itself. So I'm going to give you, some, you guys some really cool strategies for how to actually work and create this, okay? So before I start as well, um, we are launching the online version of the Personal Development School this September. We're having all these amazing launch deals. So um, the courses include everything from like self-esteem to all attachment style reprogramming. So like individually, like fearful avoidant attachment style reprogramming, anxiously attached um, individuals, like a reprogramming course, dismissive avoidant reprogramming. Um, there's courses on how to work with individuals that are of different attachment styles. Um, we go through self-sabotage courses, depression, anxiety, emotional mastery, conflict communication, like all these courses. We're launching our first major batch this September. We're making it super accessible as well. These, these courses are deep enough and intense enough. They've got workbooks, worksheets, processes, charts, strategies. They come with um, monthly webinars, sometimes bi-weekly webinars, an online forum where you can post your questions, connect with people in your area. Um, all these amazing things, um, they're deep enough that they're supposed to, you know, for, for people I can't see one-on-one, -on -one, this is, you know, this is going to be a great substitute. This is going to help you to really work through things as long as you're putting in the work from your end, as long as you're doing the workbooks and, and going through the processes. So um, the memberships are $49 a month for unlimited courses, which means if you do like four courses in a month, it's like super, super cheap. Um, and, um, and then individual courses are $97 if you just want to do one specific thing. And I just am really excited that they're, they're ready um, and they're coming out soon and they're going to be shared. So we're doing like no initiation fees, early bird pricing, 25% off, all these things. If you get your information in now, 
before um, September. So if you haven't already, just go to the Personal Development School website, and you, or you can literally just email me directly at Thais at personaldevelopmentschool.com and just let me know like either which courses you want to reserve um, for early bird pricing or if you want the membership fee, let me know that too. And um, yeah, and we'll get you organized from there. So um, let's go into this, uh, this whole, um, I keep wanting to say course because I've been recording courses so much lately, this video. Um, so um, a lot of people literally think infatuation is love. And when the infatuation fades, they associate that the love has faded. Another thing I see a lot too is people think that when their attachment style is triggered, you know, or activated, that that high and then that missing the person and that like withdrawal and the feeling of loss and all, you know, all those strong feelings that come up often, they, it can be their attachment style being triggered with being really in love. Um, and so like what's stronger than infatuation or attachment style triggering? Well, eventually really strong love with really deep roots, deep connection and deep commitment and consistency. You know, I find the more that people are working through things together collectively and, and sharing and, and creating that deep rapport in the relationship, the healthier the relationship tends to become. So when we are infatuated as human beings, neurochemicals are high. We've got like a lot of oxytocin flowing. We've got dopamine circulating, serotonin, like all these neurochemicals. And we're literally to some degree experiencing a real high. And so when we hear the term, like sometimes to describe the anxiously attached individual, we'll hear um, the love addict. And, and really this is a real thing. Like people can really be a different that love and that those early stages of connection in a romantic relationship. So once this fades, we sort of get to see like, is this turning into love or not? Or has this turned into love if this is fading around the two year mark? So how does like turn into love? What happens when we have feelings and those feelings actually turn into love? Well, what happens is we like somebody by their traits or the needs that they, they seem to meet for us. Um, but once we love, what we've done is we've been vulnerable enough to this person that we like, that we felt infatuated with, um, to truly feel seen, heard, understood, and connected at a deeper level. So we've felt that way. We've shown ourselves. And we feel like we are seeing and hearing and understanding another person and connecting with them. And that's usually what turns like into love. So the honeymoon phase neurochemistry actually makes it easier to, to be more vulnerable. And so it's really that vulnerability piece that, that allows us to fall in love um, because it requires us to feel like we're seeing, hearing, understanding another person and they're doing that for us to really feel like there's love in that relationship dynamic. And so it's really interesting because when when we um, enter into this space, right, where we've got these hormones flowing and, and neurochemicals flowing and, and all these things are going on, when that sort of fades, sometimes it becomes harder to become vulnerable. And so we show up more at that time in our natural patterns. So for example, if a person was really not good at validating you and they're not a natural complimenter, when those, you know, when those oxytocin and dopamine and all these neurochemicals are flowing because they're almost under the influence to a certain degree, they might actually show up okay in that area and be complimenting and be, be validating. But as that sort of high wears off, they go back to that natural, their natural subconscious program patterns. So it's really not that much different from like, let's say you're, you're with somebody for, you know, a little while and then they're under the influence of alcohol and maybe they say more or they, they, um, express themselves more and then, you know, they sober up the next day and then all of a sudden they're back to not being as expressive or vulnerable. It's literally like a, a version of, of the same sort of dynamic happening, different neurochemicals and, and different aspects, but like same analogy. So 
how do we keep our closeness alive despite what could create major differences? So oftentimes, well, after that honeymoon phase, um, because we'll sort of have that love is blind and the person can do no wrong and, and we're not really looking into the person's flaws, we're focusing so much on the, the great aspects of them. Um, sometimes we'll see our differences sort of highlighted or magnified more post-honeymoon phase. And so in um, what we have to do in order to, to work through this, we have to bring what's working in the honeymoon phase consciously and intentionally into the latter phase of the relationship. So I'm gonna give you 13, um, well 12, and then kind of like a little bonus feature um, key things to making a relationship work effectively and settling in and feeling like that love can grow even if that infatuation is shrinking um, so that, that that fulfillment over eventually overpowers or outweighs the pleasure seeking. So number one, we have to keep the vulnerability alive. And this is a scary thing for a lot of people, but this means like opening up, sharing things about your day, intentionally coming home, you know, let's say you're living together or let's say you're just seeing each other. Atten intentionally sharing. so amazing to me how strong the difference is, especially for dismissive avoidant attachment styles, um, how strong the difference is between how much they share at the beginning of a relationship, even if it's just like more surface stuff, but just are more open and, and sharing versus after that ends, they tend to really go back into their natural state and they can just kind of stop sharing. And then, you know, if you just look at it from a really practical perspective, if you fall in love with somebody for that, for who they are, for their vulnerability, for their sharing, and then they take it away, of course the feelings are gonna be affected as a result. Of course there's an impact because you gave somebody something and then it's gone and that's what they were loving. And so it creates that separation. So the vulnerability, the sharing, and the vulnerability is really gonna apply. I have this as a separate one because it's so important, but you know, it's really going to apply to the constant expression of our feelings and needs. And we're gonna talk about that in number three. Um, depth of connection. Okay, so here's another thing, and this kind of goes in the, the first three are all kind of together, but very important key points. Um, I see, you know, I can't believe how many times I've seen individuals at restaurants, like couples at restaurants who are maybe in their 60s, like, you know, nearing retirement or post-retirement, maybe closer to 70, and, and they're at dinner and they're not really talking. And there's an aspect of that that's like, that's nice that they don't feel this pressure to, to not, you know, to sit and to have conversation the whole time and it's okay to sit in silence and that's beautiful. But I mean like not talking at all, like, you know, hardly uttering any words and they're, it's not cause they're like fighting. Like they're just really not talking and they're sitting there and just kind of looking around and, and that breaks my heart a little bit because, you know, we might think that we've gotten to know a person because, um, they, you know, we got to know them in the early stage and then we've been around them so much, but we as human beings are dynamic or fluid. We are constantly changing. We're constantly growing, learning, adapting, whether this is conscious or unconscious. And so, you know, who you knew when you got married in your 20s or 30s, you know, might be a very different person from who this person now is sitting in front of you in your 60s. And, and it is so important to get to know the person you're with on a regular basis because they are changing, you are changing. And so we wanna create the space for like deep connection to happen. So, you know, I have on, on the website, um, the personal development school website under like free literature, I have 60 questions for um, deep connection in a relationship. Actually, I think it's 60 questions to ask before you get married. I have another question sheet for, for deep connection, but you can use those questions for deep connection too. And I like highly recommend you know, getting that out, printing it off, and like asking your partner, having connection time, like 
deep connection time where you're asking the same sort of questions you would ask in the beginning phases of a relationship. So sit down with your partner and ask these things on a regular basis. Like, um, you know, what's going on in your life now that you feel like you're struggling with the most? Or what is your biggest fear at this point in your life? Like ask these questions again. So you're getting this update, you're getting these deep connections, you're seeing and hearing and understanding the person, which is part of what we fall in love with, right? We feel seen, heard, understood, vulnerable. You're creating that dynamic in the relationship. And what you'll see is like, you've planted seeds, you've created roots through the infatuation phase. But if you're not constantly watering them, the plant dies, right? The tree dies. The, so it, this, this needs nourishment. These things can't just be these things we plant and then we like up and leave and never look at them again and expect that the tree is going to just do well or the plant, the garden is just going to like figure itself out and, and nourish itself. Like we have to go and we have to put intentional nourishment and energy into the relationship for what those seeds were and what was working, okay? Number three, communication. And this, when I say communication here, I mean expressing your feelings and needs. When we don't communicate, we instead unconsciously expect people to know what our needs are, know how we're feeling, and we think that that's what love is, and it's not. That could not be the furthest thing from the truth. True, real, healthy love is like asking about a person's feelings and needs, holding space, listening to them. If somebody does something you don't like in a relationship, you know, don't condemn it. You know, set a boundary. Say, hey, that was unacceptable, but I want to understand what was going on inside of you that led you to do that. I want to know why. I want to know what's going on and understand if that heals you and it helps you understand the other person. What were you feeling? What need was unmet? No, I don't mean like if somebody does something awful that you should stay and just work it out through that conversation. But I mean, if there's like an argument or a fight or, or a problem, these are solvable through active communication, through vulnerability, through asking about each other's feelings and needs and expressing yours in a non-confrontational way. I have a whole course about this. It's such an important, just dynamic in a relationship. So please check it out. Um, it's about conflict communication, conflict resolution. Um, number four, we want to learn each other's love languages and intentionally engage them with one another. L literally having different love languages, it's truly like speaking different languages. Um, so we might be giving gifts and we might be doing acts of service stuff all day and then a person may not even be receiving it or be receiving it like a one out of 10 of importance. And you know, the other person might be like dying for quality time and deep conversation and their partner is emotionally unavailable for that or just isn't available for that. They think they're giving tons of love. The partner feels starved and we may not know these things if we haven't figured out our love languages. If you don't know about this, there's uh, Dr. Gary Chapman is the one that created this um, and he has this stuff on his website, but the five love languages are pretty self-explanatory, are acts of service, words of affirmation, gifts, quality time, and physical touch. And, you know, quality time is sort of like deep conversations, connecting, shared activities, that kind of thing. Um, physical touch gifts are super self-explanatory, words of affirmation is like validating your partner through words, and um, acts of service is like doing things for your partner, cooking dinner, bringing them coffee in bed, taking them to the airport, like this sort of thing. Um, number five. Understanding each other's needs in the relationship, which we talked about for number three, but then actually creating healthy strategies to support your partner's needs and to have them support yours. So to actually be aware of what this person needs and to be conscious about it, checking in in your mind about it. Like if your partner says, hey, I need a, a lot of encouragement. It's something I didn't get a lot of in childhood. If they tell you that and then you forget about it and you don't set some kind of like habit around just trying to give a little bit, you know, to fill that bucket there, 
then then your partner's going to feel rejected. So check in like when your partner's expressing feelings and needs. We want to do our due diligence to number one, see their needs through and actually, you know, have a conversation and check in with their needs and make sure we're taking, it can just be tiny action steps, but just something to support what they express. And number two, seeing your needs through if you've expressed yours and they're not being met. One time of expressing doesn't necessarily mean your needs will be met for a lifetime. We have to constantly remind our partner of our needs, speak up about our needs. Our needs will change every two to three weeks, every few months, every, like every day even. So Talk about your needs on a regular basis. And if your partner is not meeting them, don't make a story that says, oh, my partner, you're never going to find a partner who remember, remembers to meet all of your needs from the moment you express one of them, you know, for life. But remind your partner. They have to get to know that. They have to have that programmed in through repetition to know, oh, yeah, this is really important to my partner. And it will eventually become its own pattern in the relationship. Number six, um, and I'm going to talk about this from a barrier standpoint, but, like, one of the biggest barriers to all of these, you know, things, it's just to like being in a really rooted, healthy space or settled into a relationship is um, your unconscious expectations. A lot of us carry these unconscious expectations, how we saw mom and dad behave, how we saw our neighbor's parents behave, how we saw, so you know, people behave on TV or in movies. And we carry these unconscious expectations into our relationship and we expect that our partner is going to show up as, you know, the person from that movie that we saw, that's the romantic comedy and, you know, Everybody does everything they can for each other. Like we have to be realistic about our expectations and we have to surface these to the conscious level and have these conversations. You want to sit down with your partner and be like, for you, what does an ideal relationship look like? Like seriously, what does this look like? Who is doing what? What are our roles? How often are we having sex? How often are we having deep conversations or date nights? How do I show up in the relationship? How do you show up? How do we have conversations? How often is it healthy to fight? This is a big one. I see some people like, you know, fearful avoidance or anxiously attached people sometimes will think that it's healthy to fight, you know, once or twice a week or, you know, or little bickers every day. And, and that's normal because that's what they saw in their parents versus like dismissive avoidance. They feel like, you know, fighting like once every three months is a lot. So you have to have this conversation so you really know um, where you guys stand because otherwise all these little behaviors and imprints and programs will get in between you two and and you'll think like, what's going on? Why is this person fighting with me so much? And, and the other person's like, gosh, we never fight. We never resolve things. Like, and, and, you know, fighting isn't healthy, but conflict is. So, so, you know, conflict is normal. It's a normal part of the evolution of a relationship. But if we approach it in a conscious way, it's extremely productive. And it's not like violent and angry. It's literally like, hey, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I didn't like. This is what I need. What happened? Why did that what, what went on that created that dynamic and on your end, I want to understand. Can you validate my feelings? I'll validate yours. Wow, feel bonded. Thank you. Conflict just brought us closer together. Like these are kind of the, the aspects that you want to get to in your relationship until it's normalized. And I promise it's a very, very achievable thing. Um, you might feel like too with expectations that like people, you know, oh, because I work more, you should take care of more of the household duties. Whereas the other person might think because it, it should be equal. We should have equal duties. So these, these conversations, like without having these conversations about your expectations, there's just like the best breeding grounds ever for resentment. And you don't want that in your relationship. Um, I'm going to run through the next ones quickly because I'm running out of time a little bit. So number seven, talk about the real stuff. We spend a lot of time and you have to catch yourself doing this. This is a really powerful one. I, I had a couple, I'll just give an analogy. I've said this before on another video, but I had a couple come into my office years ago 
And, um, and the woman said to me, she was so mad. She was like 10 out of 10 angry that her husband like keeps leaving clothes on the floor. Like I asked him, keep leaving the laundry on the floor. She was livid, like shaking, angry. And the husband is like, starts to get sad and like kind of rejected feeling. You could tell his like body language shrunk back and, and he's like really sad. And so here's these two people. One's like 10 out of 10 enraged. Another one is like eight or nine out of 10 sad, like just like is really sad. And, and I'm like, there's no way these two people are talking about clothes on the floor. This is not what it is. It's the meaning that we give to it that causes us the pain. And we have a lot of conversations in our relationships that are very surface and we're not discussing the meaning. And so we can't actually resolve the deeply rooted problem. So I ask, oh, just so you see this, I ask this woman, I'm like, so um, what do you make it mean when the clothes are on the floor? And she's like, well, he doesn't respect me. You know, I ask him and he, he forgets and he, he disrespects me. And I ask the husband, I'm like, what do you make it mean when she gets this angry about this and he's like well she must not love me very much if she's this if she's this mad at me for something so small when I do so much in other areas of the relationship so here are two people talking about being disrespected and unloved and they're trying to solve this problem through talking about the clothes on a floor and there no matter what happens with the clothes on the floor they're not actually resolving the problem they could start picking up the clothes tomorrow but this woman's still gonna have this wound feeling like her husband disrespected her all this time and this man's still going to have this wound feeling like my, my wife doesn't love me that much. And that's excruciating. So these things become walls. So when you're mad about the cupboard left open, you're mad about the person being home late, you're mad about the, the call that got shortened or whatever it is, ask yourself, what am I making it mean? That's the root of the conflict. And ask your partner the same thing. Okay? Number eight, set aside time to be present. It is really tough if individuals are not being present with one another. You might think you spend a lot of quality time together, but if you're not actually with each other, if one of you is on the phone and the other is on the computer, or you're only watching TV, but you're not actually connecting, you're connecting to the television sitting beside your partner, then there's not presence in the relationship. So whether it's at dinner, whether it's some kind of date night, whether it's just there has to be conscious and intentional time set aside where you're not connecting to something else with the person next to you. So you're not like, you know, connecting to the television or to the computer while the person's there, you're actually connecting to the person themselves, okay? Number nine, check in in the relationship. They're just like we have in the workplace, we need feedback, okay? Just like anywhere, we need feedback. Ask your partner, are your needs being met? What could I do more? What could I do less of that upsets you? Ask your partner to hold space for the same question for you. Tell your partner, what needs are met, what are unmet, what's upsetting you. Just have these conversations where you're getting feedback about the relationship. Anywhere else in our lives, we need feedback. Like career, we get feedback. We have performance appraisals, you know, for most people in the corporate world. Um, physically, we tend to have feedback. We weigh ourselves or we check in with our body, you know, mentally, emotionally. Like there's, we, it is just detrimental that people are not having those conversations in a relationship. It's a necessary part of evolution and growth. Um, number 10, keep playfulness alive. People do this intentionally. If, it, if you're 10 years into the relationship and it's not coming up anymore, do it intentionally. Google, just Google what playfulness is. You know, usually you'll find, like it can be joking around or, or um, you know, just things, you'll find that there's usually a dynamic between you and your partner where playfulness exists. But find those things and, and even if you look at what they were in the beginning of your relationship, 
find those things again, reintroduce them consciously and intentionally until they become normalized. And these are needs that we have in our relationship. Number 11, keep your resentment tank empty. This should be a goal that all relationships have ideally. Um, people think or will say to me that's impossible. It's so possible. Um, the way it happens is by talking about your feelings and needs around everything. It might feel like a lot at the beginning, but when somebody does something that hurts you, you have to say, hey, you know, you might not have recognized that, but that hurt me a little bit. Or, hey, I felt a little rejected there. It might be my stuff, but I felt rejected there. Can you be a little more careful with your words next time? We have to talk about all of those, all of those little things. Research shows it takes five positive things in a romantic relationship interaction. This is thorough research done by the Gottman Institute where they literally had people um, live in a house and a, a, a sort of hotel, like bed and breakfast, and they filmed them 24-7. Like this was, this isn't some, this was research very um, deeply conducted. And, and five positive things to outweigh one negative thing in a relationship. And so that's a good statistic to give you like a reference point to pull from, but also, you know, we can undo the one negative thing by having the conversation about it and letting the person know and when we feel heard and validated and like our feelings are seen, when the person says, hey, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that or I didn't realize I, I made you feel like that, then that also just gets rid of the one negative thing. It neutralizes it or equilibrates it. So talk about everything that bothers you. It, I, at the beginning, it might seem like there's a lot to talk about, but if you habitually do that, let's say you're reintroducing, you're introducing this now after years into the relationship, it might feel like there's a lot. Tell your partner, I'm setting the intention to talk about things more instead of repress them. Ask your partner to do the same. Um, at the beginning, it might feel like there's a lot. After a while, it just becomes a norm. You're like, hey, I felt rejected there. The person's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And like things get, like it just becomes a natural part of conversation. Other people ask me, doesn't that take so much time? The answer is it takes so much more time to store that thing as a resentment, wait on autopilot for five positive things to outweigh that one negative thing, hope that it happens. It usually doesn't um, as a general rule, especially way later into a relationship as a general rule, and then store that resentment, be angry towards your partner, pull away over time, feel sad about it. Like you waste way more time by not having those discussions. Number 12, last but not least, intentionally try to compliment try to see and notice things about your partner on purpose look at them like what are they doing that's powerful right now what are they doing that's beautiful right now what are they doing that is inspiring to you that that they're trying to work towards compliment these things see and hear your partner that's part of why we fall in love in the first place we feel seen we feel heard we feel noticed we feel understood introduce those things into your relationship consciously and intentionally and last but not least um, I said 12, and there's sort of like a bonus because this is a whole other video that I'm going to make, but intimacy generally follows this. When there is emotional intimacy post-honeymoon phase, physical intimacy tends to follow. When emotional intimacy shuts off, physical intimacy can stay alive for a while, but not forever, and it tends to be thought out, you know, in other ways, other places, other forms, um, emotionally, physically, and always. Like, it's, it's a, a need that we all have as human beings. So physical intimacy, sex, tend to follow this emotional connection as long as you're keeping these things alive in, in a relationship. And the reason I put this in here is because sex is an important part of a romantic relationship. So it is something that should be checked in with, had conversations about. I'll make a full separate video for this. But those are your 12 or 13 key things for today. Thank you so much for watching.